This is an ABC podcast. These fingers of marsh of land go out into this North Sea and it's that kind of edge land which gives it its mystery. And of course it's tailor-made for smuggling. Hello, I'm Rebecca Huntley and welcome to the History Listen. Today, a story that links the ship of the famous naturalist Charles Darwin with 19th century English smugglers. My love is the smuggler, he sails upon the sea. I wish I were a smuggler for to sail along with he. The most important area of Britain for smuggling was the southeast and east. And also, it's very, very close to the major market, which was London. There was a very small article appeared that the vessel, the Beagle, is now a watch vessel and from now on it will be referred by its watch vessel number. People had said to me, do you realise that Charles Darwin's ship is at Pagelsham? So, I mean, over the years people had mentioned it. Producer Fiona Gruber was intrigued, so she headed to the muddy marshes of East London the stomping grounds of early smugglers and the resting place of HMS Beagle, one of the most well-known ships of all time. The County of Essex. It's my birthplace. And in the 19th century, its waterways and mudflats were notorious as the haunt of smugglers. In return visits over the years, I've heard stories of boats at midnight and barrels of brandy hidden in tree hollows and churchyards. I've also heard that this is where Charles Darwin's Beagle ended up in 1845, far away from her glory days exploring the southern seas. It's an intriguing tale, so I'm heading back to my childhood haunts in South Essex, a trip that's only an hour east of London that feels like a million miles away mud flats stretching into the distance. So where are we now, Clear? Well, we're in the River Roach. Um, we're heading up towards Pagelsham Pool. On our left, we're passing the entrance to Yoke Fleet. The locals call it the Yoklet. That's my old it's friend, Clear Owinski. We were at school together, and she's been sailing these waters for years. Old boys. Um, uh, it's low water at the moment, so it's particularly narrow, and it gets extremely shallow further up. But the secret is, at high tide, you can actually get through to the Thames. And as you can see, if you look around, um, it, it's very low-lying land around here, and it's, it's, it's really rather difficult to find the entrance to little creeks like this. You have to know what you're looking for. I think that's probably the key to the smuggling thing, you know? You just don't know where you're going unless somebody tells you where it is. You could get very lost out here among these treacherous sands and muddy islands, here on the River Roach. Only the seals and gulls look at home. Here's the thing, Fiona. I mean, dead ahead, you, you probably can't see it. Well, I don't know. Can you see it? Can you see the entrance to a creek up there dead ahead? You can't, can you? But no, I, know I can't it's see there. anything. I know it's there, and I know that there's a... We call I it think we're almost at our destination. It's becoming obvious now that we are so close. Um, you can see that entrance to Pagelsham Pool. And there on the left, um, it looks like just a flat piece of mud, but I believe, well, from everything everybody's told me, that's where the beagle lies, under the mud, probably some 20 foot under the mud, but right there. 
it's a bit slippery, there's seaweed everywhere and... We're off the boat now careful, and eh? wading through the mud. Oh my God, it's so... Clea's brought me to the sea wall at Pagglesham, a small village on the River Roach in South Essex. I'm here to meet Anne Bolter. She's a retired French teacher and local historian, and for more than 20 years, she's been collecting information about the last resting place of the Beagle and its use as a floating Coast Guard station, there to suppress smuggling. If you just stand here and look out towards the river, you can see the indentation. It's a little bit like a We're standing on an embankment overlooking the river and and the former dock where the beagle was moored. The sides of the dock are really quite clear. Anne's pointing to a flat bit of featureless mud. The dock's only a faint outline now. To the right you've got the oyster pits and here round the corner there are many more oyster pits. Did you have any inkling that there was an amazingly famous boat at the bottom of your garden? Yes, village rumour, and that does count for quite a lot these days. People had said to me, do you realise that Charles Darwin's ship is at Pagglesham? So, I mean, over the years, people had mentioned it. The Beagle's such a famous ship, but when she arrived in Pagglesham, she'd fallen on hard times, hadn't she? Well, she'd been in ordnance for a while over on the Medway. Ordnance were the Navy's stores, supplying ships and weapons. And the Admiralty still owned her at that point, but eventually she was handed over to the Coast Guard people. You see, the Beagle was in this mid-position here, so she could see in all directions. But there was the Kangaroo at Burnham, there was the Dove on Foulness Island, there was another one at Haven Gore, so there were quite The Beagle was one of several old ships used as watch vessels by the Coast Guard in this network of rivers. What actual evidence is there that there was the watch guard vessel number seven or the Beagle in that particular dock, Anne? Well, we started our researches looking up the census return and on the census for 1851 and 1861, right at the very end of all the village people were the names of George Hale and his family and four other families and underneath dwelling it said HMS Beagle. So there it was, proof in black and white. Anne's convinced, but what about the archaeologists? 16 years ago, her researchers attracted a team from the Institute of Marine Studies at St Andrews University in Scotland. So I'm going to meet up with one of the scientists who came down to probe the mud. Dan Atkinson is Director of Coastal Marine at Wessex Archaeology, but back then, in 2002, he was a research student. What were they hoping to find? Well, essentially, the location of this mud dock and to try and understand, primarily um, using geophysics and remote sensing, what the nature and extent of the dock was and, indeed, whether or not there were any remains of potential vessels left within the dock itself. We could clearly see what could be the remnants of vessels. Not necessarily the Beagle, because we know that the mud dock would have been used as a dumping ground, basically. So a lot of the local fishermen and boat owners would just dump their boats and and vessels in the dock. But we felt that we had found the dock that we had actually recognised on the old maps uh, and the location of where the watch vessels moved from the river channel onto the riverbank. When you put your probes down and you look through the water and the mud, is there anything actually proves it is the beagle any material evidence 
Well, it's very, very difficult without actually excavating the dock. But what we did do, and what was extremely exciting, was we looked at timbers in the boatyard shed about 100 yards from the site, and we actually discovered timbers which matched the dimensions of the beagle timbers. So, for example, bits of deck beam, the, the sort of curved knees that attach the deck beams to the side of the ship. And actually, not only did they match the dimensions of the timbers, but we are pretty certain the timbers are in fact naval timbers because they had shipwrights timber marks on them and we actually were able to narrow the source of that timber to Sheerness. That's Sheerness Naval Dockyard round the coast in the county of Kent where for hundreds of years ships went for repair and maintenance. So were there thoughts to bring the Beagle up to the surface? I'm talking to marine archaeologist Dan Atkinson. The ship was broken up in, in the 1870s, so we're not looking at an extant ship, but we're not looking at something that is whole. If there is remains of the Beagle within that dock, it will be fragments and probably just the bottom of the vessel. So, for example, things like the keel and perhaps bits of the framing from the lower part of the ship. It seems a really sad end to a ship that took part in three extraordinary voyages. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. And that played a vital part in developing Darwin's theories of evolution. Chapter 1. The object of the expedition was to complete the survey of Patagonia and Tierra del Fuego, to survey the shores of Chile and Peru and some islands in the Pacific and to carry a chain of chronometrical measurements round the world. Darwin tells us about his trip with the Beagle on her second voyage of exploration between 1831 and 36. But before that, she'd already been to South America. And after Darwin left her, she went on a third voyage between 1837 and 43, mapping large parts of Australia, west, south and north. Alongside Port Darwin, there's Beagle Gulf in the Timor Sea and in Western Australia, the Fitzroy River named after Captain Fitzroy, the captain on the second voyage with Darwin. So what made the ship so special? Back to archaeologist Dan Atkinson. She was built at Woolwich as a brig sloop, and these essentially were the eyes of the empire surveying and, and exploring various parts of the world and the coastlines, doing lots of mapping. And it was a perfect vessel for the sorts of operations that Charles Darwin was undertaking. But we remember Charles Darwin and we remember the people, but maybe we should think more about the ship that helped to take them to all these places around the world. Is there sentimentality about boats or do even famous boats just get passed on to lowly coastal duties? Well, the one thing we have to remember with the Royal Navy is that the vessels are built for a purpose. And when they get to the end of their useful life, obviously Beagle would have been 20, 30 years old by the time she ended up on the River Roach. It's really a question that once they have ended their useful life, then the Navy just get rid of them. So there the Beagle was, past her prime, no longer sailing grandly in exotic waters, but up a creek without her masts, without her name, watch vessel number seven, an unloved floating Coast Guard station. But what about the men and their families who lived on her? Bolt has established that up to five Coast Guards and their families made the Beagle their home at the same time. Crowding into a ship that was less than 30 metres long, it must have been very cramped. 
Back at Anne Bolter's cottage in Pagglesham, she's showing me a photograph. And I did hear from a descendant of George Hale who sent me this photograph. Coast Guard George Hale, one of the names listed as living on the Beagle on the census for 1861, had a daughter. Eleanor Hale, who was 12. So, I mean, that is lovely. That's the only face that I have of somebody who lived on the Beagle. Well, she's wearing her best long frock, yes. 1864. What an extraordinary childhood she would have had she would. out on the mud in that ship. She probably had no idea it was really famous, did she? No, I don't think anybody did at the time, really. Anne's got one of the Beagle's Sadly, anchors that was found was in the mud near the site. And she's also showing me some crockery she found buried there. women would have used. And the most interesting thing was the blue and white china called Asiatic Pheasant. But Anne's got an even bigger prize she's been keeping under wraps. Well, there's this chair which you see here. This um, is reported to come off the beak. We're looking at a rather handsome wooden chair with curved arms and turned legs. It's probably made of oak. Obviously, they got rid of things. Um, that is the story of the chair, which has been authenticated as being made in one of the workshops where they furnished the Beagle and other ships too. There is a, a map of the poop deck of the beagle and there are three little circles on it and each one is labelled and one of them says Mr Darwin's chair. The other two belong to the officers so there's at least a one in three chance that Charles Darwin sat in it. So there it is. That is what we call the beagle chair. May I lower myself gently into Please it do. Anne? Yes it's quite Well sp- this is a thrilling moment. I'm just sitting in a chair that Charles Darwin probably sat in. That chair's had a pretty chequered life. Once the ship's globe-trotting days were done, did Coast Guard sit in Darwin's chair as they squinted across the water for signs of illicit activity? Aware that Pagglesham was a local centre for smuggling activity. I need to know more about these local smugglers. So I'm heading to the village of Bradwell-on-Sea, a short distance away. In fact, you see Colchester on the clear day from here. It's on another local river, the Blackwater. And Peter Lazel, a former policeman and local historian, uh, is leading me to the ancient waterside coast. chapel of St Peter's, a place favoured by smugglers and only reachable by foot or water. And St Peter's Chapel was built from the remains of the old Roman fort of Athona. So therefore we're talking of 2,000 years. Uh, people have been walking along the same road that we're walking along. I wonder if smugglers walked along this road. The first recording we have here isn't Roman times. It's about 1200 and it relates to to wool because the government brought in a tax on wool because at that time England did the finest wool in the world. And that's about the first recording we have of actually uh, smuggling taking part from the Essex coast. We've just reached St Peter's Chapel. We're standing in front of this huge oak door studded with big iron nails. Let's go inside. What an extraordinary space. Rough stone walls, rafters and a simple pitched roof and uh, a crucifix hanging in the walls. This chapel feels very special and holy and yet I believe it wasn't seen as such by the smugglers, was it? 
No, after it stopped being used as a church, uh, it was used for agricultural purposes and all sorts of local purposes. But smugglers, it was a favourite place because it's built on land overlooking a long way in each direction. And to detect the smugglers, the customs used cutters. A cutter's a small, fast sailing ship. And they also had riders on horseback that would try and catch smugglers in the act. And so therefore, it was a very useful lookout post. And they even went as far as to have a rudimentary semaphore on the roof so they could give warning. And of course, if the customs man came, they'd warn the smuggling vessels who go away or would drop the rum or whatever they were smuggling into the water and make an escape. And of course, the lookouts would run off into the marshes that were around here and hide and never be found. No smugglers, no anybody. So did they hide contraband here? They didn't hide contraband in the chapel itself, but they hid it in the immediate vicinity of the chapel. As recently as 30 years ago, in a neighbouring village in a wood there, somebody recovered some barrels which had contained gin. Uh, So obviously that was a smuggler's store which had been left and they hadn't ever come back for. And in fact, in the immediate vicinity of the chapel, there are several hidey holes around the area. And in fact, there's a bridge called Brandy Bidge. The whole of the countryside was with the smugglers and so therefore the coast guards had no support locally from anybody to help them. The smugglers used local superstitions to their own advantage. There's lots of ghost stories in this area but it's not surprising that almost all of the ghost stories are areas where the smugglers used. Uh, For instance here their rumour is that lights were seen in the chapel and Figures were seen moving around in the chapel, but when people approached the chapel, it was in total darkness. But of course, if there was a lookout and it saw somebody approaching, it would think it was probably the custom, so the lights would be extinguished and they'd go and hide. So it's not surprising, is it? So by the time our story properly opens with the Beagle, there were watchmen stationed all around the rivers around here. How were these watchmen or coast guards regarded by everybody else? They were disliked because the economy of the area was very low. It was agricultural work. It paid very little. Uh, There was a lot of real poverty and starvation. And so therefore the smugglers offered the chance to earn a few extra shillings. And if they didn't pay you, they paid you in kind. And so therefore a bottle of brandy might not represent income, but it did represent a bit of relief from the drudgery of life in those days. Because the smugglers had the support of quite a few officials, you could suffer the consequences if you were to tell on the smuggling operation. So nobody wanted to have anything to do with the customs officers. And in fact, they and their families led very difficult lives. From Peter's research, it sounds as though other arms of the law were more of a pushover. The local magistrates uh, were like everybody else and at that time, particularly in relation to brandy and gin, the taxes on on importation were prohibitive. And so therefore, if you're a magistrate and you turn a blind eye and every couple of weeks a case of brandy and some cigars is left outside your house, are you going to find the next smuggler guilty or not? It's in the evening after dark When the smugglers, they go off to work They walk the path and leave no mark There goes the blackwater smuggler 
You're moving a chair and you're revealing a trapdoor in the floor. Ooh, steep steps. So, if you dare, you can follow me down into the cellar. That's historian Richard Platt, who's written several books on smuggling and lives in a suitably secretive house in Hastings on England's south coast. This house was built, originally built in, in the middle of the 15th century, so it was certainly here... I've come to see him to get the bigger picture on the history of smuggling in Britain. Local houses have cellars just like this. And frequently, because the cellars abutted each other, it was possible to break a way through between one house and the next. And you could enter one house and then reappear hundreds of yards down the road. What's the best smuggling hidey hole you've ever seen, Richard? Well, in the Mermaid Inn in Rye, which is not very far from here, there is an archetypal secret staircase leading from a bedroom on the first floor. You slide away a bookcase, just like in an Agatha Christie novel, and there's a little winding spiral staircase that takes you downstairs to the bar, and I think that's probably the best I've seen. So what's the bigger picture, Richard? When was the heyday of smuggling in Britain? It boomed in the 18th and early 19th century and reached staggering proportions. Although there were legally available taxed goods that had paid all the proper fees, most people wouldn't use them. They'd just buy smuggled goods because they were so much cheaper and much more abundant. There's the famous poem by Rudyard Kipling about brandy for the parson and backy for the clerk. Five and twenty ponies trotting through the dark Brandy for the parson, baggy for the clerk Laces for a lady and letters for a spy Watch the warmer darling while the gentlemen go by And certainly brandy and tobacco and laces and silk and all those kind of luxury items were smuggled in very large quantities. But other things were also smuggled. Tea was a huge contraband item. Enormous quantities of tea came across from continental Europe to Britain and it made up 90% of all the tea drunk in Britain at some stages. And other mundane items, things like salt, pepper, uh, wax candles, paper, any kind of item that was taxed was smuggled into Britain. Richard Platt wants to show me some of his genuine uh, smuggling artefacts. Up to the attic where I happen to have a couple of barrels educational. What we're looking at here is the kind of diminutive barrel. I suppose it's about two foot in length and maybe 18 inches in diameter. What's really interesting about this is that there was no legitimate use for a barrel this small. Uh, if the revenue authorities discovered a barrel of this size, it was more or less evidence that you were a smuggler. You, if you were moving legitimate cargoes across the coast, you'd move them in big barrels, which could be unloaded with winches on docks. So the packaging was a clue to your crime. So what happened if you got caught? The death penalty was often commuted to transportation, and this sentence was widely prescribed for lesser smuggling offences from 1718. And at first... The smugglers were transported to the American colonies, but, of course, the American Revolution put paid to that. Subsequently, another alternative was found, which was to transport some of these prisoners to Australia. Robert Appleby, aged 61. Abraham Sampson. 14 years. Stubberfield and Demon. Transportation for the term of your natural life. Nearly 160,000 convicts had been shipped out to Australia. 
And I don't know what proportion of these people were smugglers, but certainly when you go through the court records in Britain, transportation comes up as a frequent penalty for smuggling. So a substantial proportion of those convicts would have been smugglers. Did any of the smugglers caught by coast guards on the Beagle end up in Australia? Maybe they did. By the time the Beagle was moored in her dock on the River Roach in 1845, a lot of taxes had been removed. But spirits and tobacco were still lucrative contraband. And in Essex, those midnight folk were still busy plying their illicit trade. But what about smuggling today? I'm back in Essex, just a stone's throw down the river from the Beagle. I'm meeting my old friend Clear again and her sailing mates Dick Durham and Nick Skeens in the Star Inn, an old smuggler's pub on the waterfront. So, is there still smuggling going on today? Undoubtedly. It's very different now. It's people smuggling that's going on. There's drugs coming in. I mean, dope being dropped by light aeroplanes on this coastline. There's, a, there's all sorts of ways to get around tax around here, isn't there? <laughs> He said, rolling a cigarette. <laughs> You've got a family history of... Hang on, I don't have a family history of smuggling, um, but my father, long dead, so I can say anything I like about him. Yeah, he was one of the last uh, HM Customs and Excise water guards in Burdamont Crouch, and he was responsible for uh, ensuring that boats coming in from overseas uh, had paid all their excise duty and they weren't, well, smuggling. But, in fact... He had a bit of a reputation for going over, visiting the boats, flying the Q-Fag, saying, hello, isn't it a lovely day? And yes, I'd gladly accept that uh, sweet, sweet bottle of whiskey from you. Thank you very much. And off he went. Everyone's full of tales of midnight drug halls and East End gangs. But Dick Durham's got a story he wants to tell that ties in with Darwin and the Beagle. Some friends I know, these people walking along under their cliffs there, the famous white cliffs of Dover, and there's a barrel rolling in the surf. Well, of course, you're going to go and get it on you. So they did, and it was heavy. They took it home, they tapped it, and they tasted this fluid, and it was brandy. And it was really good brandy. And when it eventually ran out, this barrel was still heavy. So they then obviously became suspicious. They took bands of metal off, and out fell a monkey. Why would there be a dead monkey in a barrel? Good question. One can only assume it must have been some sort of example of a particular monkey brought back on a ship for... Maybe like Darwin's ship, you know, the Beagle bringing it back to be examined for, for whatever reason. Uh, and because the Goodwin Sands holds these great secrets and after every great gale, they come up. The Beagle is another tale that still remains buried. So what do Clear and her local friends think about the ship's fate? It should have been rescued by now. It should have been rescued. Why has it not been recovered? The most important scientific vessel in the history of mankind. If it was America, there'd be a theme park there. Uh, not that we want Thank a theme park God there. But it should have been rescued by now. It should have been rescued. And it's like so many of the wrecks around here that are just reduced to that. Some of them have stories to tell at like the Beagle. And there's no greater story than the Beagle. The Beagle's fate is a great yarn. But is this the end of the story? The last word should go to marine archaeologist Dan Atkinson. He worked on the original search for HMS Beagle. What does he think? Definitely unfinished business as far as I'm concerned and uh, I, I would be really, really keen to see if we can 
actually do some excavations in the dock to actually see if we could reveal the possible remains of the ship to understand more about the dock and possibly what's in it. Including the remains of HMS Beagle. Absolutely, fingers crossed. The strange fate of HMS Beagle. And thanks to all who took part. The producer was Fiona Gruber and the sound engineer was Tim Simons. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Thanks for your company and join me next time on The History Listen. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.